Anna, we need to talk. I can't deal with this anymore. Oh, God, what have I done? It's just confusing. It's confusing. It's confusing the people. It's confusing me. We need to do something about it now. Oh, okay. Like, I hear you. I mean, I'm bloody confused. I don't know what the difference is anymore. It's a nightmare. So what are we going to do about it? What we're going to do about it is we are going to uh, make the change. We're making the switch, everybody. We have a very quick announcement to make. From June 29, our podcast, Ladyland, will now be known as Lady Brains. I'm sure you're all asking the question, why? Well, you guys have all let us know that you found the two names confusing and I'll be completely honest, so do we. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know what we were thinking when we started the podcast with a different name, but here we are and we are making the change. So what does this mean for you? From June 29, to find our show, you'll need to search Lady Brains wherever you get your podcast. That's Lady, L-A-D-Y, dash Brains, B-R-A-I-N-S. Or to make it even easier, please hit subscribe. We'll stay pinned inside your library so you won't have to search for us ever again. How how good would that be? It'd be amazing. So good. Thank you for all your support. We heard you. We're making the decision. We're changing. And now we're getting back into the episode. I'll never forget. There was a moment where on our profit and loss statement projections, um, we've got a 1% contribution on top of the 2% of turnover that we give to fair trade already. Mm -hmm. And... um, The investor pointed at that line and said, oh, can you explain this 1% to me? And Nicole and I immediately got defensive based on our previous meetings. And he stopped us and said, no, no, I really like this. I want to know more about how you're going to use this funding to have impact. Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. What does it take to truly innovate? To create a product where others before you have tried but failed. And to not only create an innovative product, but to also ensure that the business is fair trade. That's what we're talking about with Julia Nicole, friends and co-founders of Elements, the world's first naturally enriched vitamin tea brand. They originally met at a writers club in Melbourne, where they bonded over their shared love of creative writing, tea and ethical and sustainable business practices. Together, they saw an opportunity in the market for an easier, more efficient way to consume all-natural, everyday supplements by combining them with something that they drank on the regular, tea. After a long two-year process, figuring out how to enrich tea with natural vitamins and minerals, Julie and Nicole finally cracked the code. They lodged a patent for their manufacturing technique and after only eight months in market, managed to secure a huge distribution deal with Woolworths in Australia. With no cash on hand and odds stacked firmly against them as women trying to raise Series A funding, just in the nick of time, they found the money they needed and haven't looked back. We asked the impressive duo to begin with the all too familiar struggle of remembering to take your daily vitamins and how this led to a new product in the tea market. So Nicole and I were actually friends for years before we started the business together. And we were both busy professional working women, and we would often talk about how difficult it was to have three healthy meals every single day in the chaos of the day. And there were tablets, but we didn't like taking them. They were synthetic, and 
it would kind of sit in the pantry forever and you'd look at them every now and then and think, mm, maybe not today. So Nicole came up with the idea of blending fruit and herbal extracts with fair trade teas. So what we did was we spent two years in research and development to figure out how to actually blend the nutrients with the tea in a way that still tasted delicious and didn't harm the nutrients. And we came out with Elements, which launched launched just over a year ago. So tell us about that manufacturing process or the, the process of R&D, trying to figure out how to do this because you're the first brand to be able to actually do this. Mm. So what was yeah, that yeah. two-year process like? Um, we sort of feel a bit like an investigative journalist <laughs> research and development because you just, you know, you think of the idea and then you think, okay, I'll try this and then that doesn't work. So you think, okay, I'll try something else. Um, and it's really just trial and error um, and being clear about where you want to end up, which for us was um, a natural vitamin T. So we just stayed within the parameters of keeping it natural and keeping it organic. Um, and just tried a bunch of different things with different manufacturers. But if no one had done this before, was there a part of you that was like, maybe it can't be done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of um, questioning during those two years. It's Two years is a long it's time. It's a very long, long time. time to be trying to do something that hasn't been done before. But we were just so committed to the idea of natural and so committed to an innovative product that was really going to bring a new option to tea drinkers mm. um, and be ethical at the same time. So we kept that as front of mind and we just stopped taking no for an answer. Um, there were so many times that people said, oh, well, you could do it as synthetic or you could add binders or, um, you know, you don't have to have all the certifications. And we just were besotted with the idea of a natural fair trade vitamin T. And I think because of that, mm. when we actually launched, there was an immediate reaction to mm. it because it felt like there was so much thought and passion that had gone into the product. So how many manufacturers did you work with until you were able to kind of land this new way of doing things? Uh, there was the Queensland company. We tried a, a different tea company in Sri Lanka, um, probably about four or five. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one in the States. Oh, yeah. We ended up going all around. <laughs> oh, that one. <laughs> we started in Queensland because at first I really wanted to make it in Australia. Mm. Um, started in Australia, went to Sri Lanka, went to the US and ended up manufacturing in England. Wow. Finding the right partner there, yeah, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, for a two-person company, we mm. came out with a patent-pending manufacturing method and neither of us have a science background. We're not engineers. <laughs> We're not nutritionists. Which is probably why we ended up making it because mm -hmm. I just, I mean, yeah, we're not technical people, but I just kept thinking, you know, you can go to the moon. We've got all this amazing tech. <laughs> you know, surely we, we can, can put vitamins this. in a tea bag. I mean, how hard can it be? <laughs> so how were you able to have those technical conversations with manufacturers if you didn't have any kind of understanding? Was it just a matter of learning on the fly? Yes. Lots yeah. of Googling. Mm. Um. And also not having ego is really important in those conversations because if you're willing to ask the right questions, then you can get the right information. And we were so committed to fair trade and really bought in on the idea that we could have a huge amount of impact with this product. 
And we shared that message with our partners. And so they became really bought in on that idea and were willing to help us push boundaries, try different things, fail a bunch, try something else until we found the right process. And I can imagine as a two-woman business that, you know, it would be difficult to negotiate with these manufacturers. Were you ever worried that like someone would take the idea, especially now that you've been kind of shopping it around, trying to find the right person to partner with? Were you ever worried that, oh my God, someone's going to take this incredible idea and, you know, do what we've been trying to do for two years? Oh, I'm sure mm. someone will copy it eventually. For us, um, because it was so difficult, we knew we had a <laughs> bit of a runway yeah. when launching the product. But I'm sure someone will copy it. And um, mm. knowing that is why we spent so long on creating a delicious product, mm. creating a product that had a really good story behind it and that actually did have incredible impact. Because copying all of those things at once is really hard. You can take the idea, and I'm sure a big company will, but you can't um, duplicate the passion and the innovation of being a first mover. And I think people can sense that when they pick up a product. They can mm. sense if it came from, you know, a giant multinational or two women who literally still pack our own samples to send out to consumers. The human touch. I love that. Yeah. yeah. What was that moment like when the manufacturer came back to you and was like, we've cracked it. We've done it. <laughs> it was 5 a.m. in the morning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had done a trial and um, it was on an industrial size machine. So literally, if the trial failed, we would have wasted about $50,000 worth of product. Mm. And we were waiting up all night to find out if the trial worked because it was in, in the UK on UK time zone. Um, and just so <laughs> nervous. Oh my God, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and we finally got the call around 5 a.m. And the trial had actually finished hours before and they'd forgotten to call us. Oh yes. God, how dare they? <laughs> And obviously it was successful because we're still here today. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, so many questions. I want to know, I mean, can you give us a high level overview of the of the manufacturing actual process? Like how much detail can you go into? Because I'm quite interested. We don't really go too far into the detail mm. of now you've cracked this huge, you know, problem. Can you talk us through yes. a little bit about how it actually is manufactured? So with tea bags, you um you have to have a certain density mm -hmm. and a certain cut of the tea. And you can't have multiple densities in your blend because it won't flow correctly through the machine. So we needed to figure out a way to process the vitamins that wasn't going to hurt the vitamins, but was going to give us the same density right. as our tea. Um, and there was no way to do that within the tea industry but we actually found um, a manufacturing process that had been used in a different industry. And we duplicated that to process the vitamins so that we could actually put them through the teabagging machine. And again, neither of us are technical. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of questions asked and a long process of understanding manufacturing um, and logistics and nutrients and tea blending even um, before we got here. But I actually think that, um, you know, really does prove that you, if you have an idea, if you've got the right partners, then you can make mm. that idea a reality. You just have to be able to buy them into the vision. Good partners are really important. And what, what kind of, for you, makes a good partner? 
What's, what are important things to look for when people are looking for manufacturing partners or suppliers? Business partners. Business partners. That's a good one. Oh, what are you looking at me for? I'm looking at you. Yeah, you're a great um, business partner. Thanks. Yeah, great question. Um, we love to work with really nice people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, um, you know, running a business is such hard work. It's just really lovely to deal with wonderful, warm people. Um, People who really know their stuff mm. and um, who talk fast mm-hmm. <laughs> and can really deliver, yeah, got to be able to deliver yeah. and um, and do it in an enjoyable way. Yeah. yeah. I think um, building deep relationships with our business partners has actually been the key mm. to our rapid success. Some of our manufacturing partners and suppliers are actually the biggest cheerleaders for this brand, um, and they have gone above and beyond to help us even outside of the remit of what we're hiring them to do. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's all about building those relationships and being values aligned as well. If they understand your values and you understand their values, then even when things go wrong, you've got a base to work from. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, you are a very ethically led business and you're a fair trade business. And so finding aligned partners would be really important in that sense. Can you tell us a little bit about why being fair trade was so important for you? Um, Well, yeah, we are a fair trade company. So really that's our whole reason for being. So Mm -hmm. having a product that wasn't fair trade was just never an option. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, when I when I was in my late 20s, I travelled through East Africa and India and visited a lot of development projects and I um, visited a tea plantation and spoke to a number of the people that worked on there and it was clear that, I mean, they worked really hard, they were all working full time, but yet this aid and development company still needed to um, provide, help them with basic necessities of life food, education, etc. And it just, to me, it just made no sense. Like these people are working really hard um, and yet they still lived in, you know, abject poverty in these shacks and, you know, it was just, so I thought, well, the system isn't working, like something's not working. So when I got back to Australia, I I um, read about fair trade and, and trade justice and I just thought that's what I'm going to do. So I started a sort of fair trade company and, and well, that's kind of where it started mm. many years ago. <laughs> Nicole doesn't like to brag, but she was actually one of the founding board members of Fair Trade Australia oh, New Zealand. Wow. <laughs> that's very impressive. That's what I'm here to do is brag about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. We like that. <laughs> so you it. had a, a little insight into the process because I can imagine it's quite difficult to become certified, fair trade certified. Can you talk us through the process of doing that and becoming certified? Yeah, well, one of the great things about fair trade is that it's actually a product-based certification. Um, so it's easy for any company to kind of sign up and get certified. Um, the, the hard work starts when you're tracking the product through the supply chain. Fair trade is the most rigorous ethical trade certification in the world. Um, but what it does is it gives you access to a network of ethically aligned suppliers and other companies that you can work with. So as a small business, it means that you don't have to do your own slavery audits, your own child labor audits. Mm. You can directly connect with suppliers who have already worked through those with fair trade. So it gives you that network to be able to choose, you know, beautiful bourbon vanilla from Madagascar and bright Egyptian mint 
um, and be able to work directly with the fair trade cooperatives who produce those gorgeous goods um, and know that there is not a shadow of a doubt that these are ethically aligned partners. So fair trade basically collates all of the information about the supply, the fair trade suppliers, and then you have a list of suppliers that you can contact and choose from. Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you become part of that list. Yeah. So yeah. Um, fair trade also does a lot of work in promoting um, ethical supply chains and purchasing ethically. Um, and we're one of the only fair trade certified teas in the Australian supermarkets, only 3% of tea sales last year were fair trade certified. So there's a huge opportunity to have impact mm. literally with every cup of tea you drink. And it was really important for us to have that option on supermarket shelves for tea lovers. Yeah. Why do you think that is, that there are so few companies mm. who are fair trade, in the tea category at least? It's, it's a lot harder. You, you're limited in the the suppliers that you can choose. Um, I mean, it costs more. Yeah. Um, and this, it comes back to the DNA of a company really and, and why you exist. Um, so for us, it wasn't negotiable. We were fair trade. But if your company is set up to, um, you know, your purpose is to make profit for shareholders, then you're obviously going to be loyal to that, um, that goal. There is merit to the other certifications that are out there, but fair trade really is the only one that guarantees, you know, a living wage. Yeah. It has, mm. um, it sets minimum prices for each commodity around the world. So you have to pay those minimum prices and that's not negotiable, um, whereas no other certification has that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other great regulations as well, um, which is all uh, a lot more work. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just about priority, really, I guess. How much more expensive is it to purchase raw ingredients that are fair trade? So we did a case study of our Sri Lankan um, tea that we purchase, and we found that on average, we were spending 260% more per kilo of tea than conventional companies were paying, which again, if you think that that is the minimum for a living wage for these farmers, it really gives you an insight into how little other tea companies are paying for these beautiful teas and spices that they're purchasing and how difficult it would be for a farmer to make a living wage and get out of poverty in the current system. It's just crazy. Oh, it, is, it is crazy. I mean, and it's it's commendable. I mean, you ladies could, you were the first people to figure out how to combine tea and vitamins and that wasn't enough. You know, you, <laughs> that wasn't enough. And I love that you um, have made this a priority to, you know, find those partners that now can live off, off, you know, as you said, it's, it's not crazy to be demanding or expecting people to earn a, a, a fair living. So yeah, I think it's really great what you've done. For, for other people that are looking to embed ethical practices in their business, what would you say to them? I think it's about your purpose for being. What is your mission? Why are you starting your company? And we found that, honestly, there are opportunities for impact at every decision point. If you are choosing a warehouse, you can have impact in that choice. We've decided to warehouse with a company that employs uh, mentally disabled workers. If you are choosing the paper that you use in your printer at the office, you can choose FSC um, certified paper or you can choose recycled paper. 
there are so many opportunities to have an impact when you are creating a business. Um, and there are so many opportunities for current businesses to increase their impact without having to give up uh, making profit. We really wanted to prove that you can have an innovative and profitable company and still be ethical. And actually that that's the baseline that any new product should be starting from. Because for consumers, it's just not even an option anymore. There's no excuse to not be ethical these days. There is enough transparency in our supply chains and there's enough opportunity to help um, suppliers as well as your customers create that impact. And any new company should just be doing that this at this point. I think that's such a great point because there is this perception that um, making ethical and impactful decisions, there's, there's a com- there has to be a commercial trade-off. Yeah. And I guess what you did is you built... Um, the business fair, model. The business in, model. Yeah, around that. Exactly, yeah. around that, which, you know, I think it's a great lesson for all of us who are, you know, building and, and starting businesses is how do you plan, you know, how do you create your business so that you do have the opportunity to make money, but also... Um, have an impact and, and ensure that your supply chain is is ethical. Yeah. yeah. One of the ways that I think about it is if, you're, if your business model is around donating profit, essentially what you're saying is you've baked a cake and you've put the frosting on top and that frosting is the profit and you can always scrape that off. Whereas if ethics is the flour that you use to create mm-hmm. the cake, there's no way you're getting that out of the cake once it's baked. Um, so you will always continue to make ethical decisions and have impact. Mm. Oh, I love a good analogy. <laughs> Especially that. a baking analogy during isolation. Oh, yes. Oh, God, that's good. Oh, yeah. I really yeah. like Can that. Can relate to that. Can relate. We'll use that one. I do enjoy that. <laughs> so um, I just want to kind of quickly touch back on to the uh, database of suppliers that you can go out to, this whole idea of a co-op and, um, and finding those ethical uh, suppliers. When you're looking for an ingredient, it's mint, it could be who knows what it is that you're after. How easy is it for you to go and find those suppliers and source those ingredients? So we're creating a new blend at the moment because mm. during isolation, we actually went out to our tea drinking community and we said, well, we're going to have to do some pivoting. So uh, what do you guys want? What functional ingredients are you interested in? What flavors are you interested in? And then we took that information and we actually just emailed our fair trade rep and we said, hey, do you know anyone who's doing these ingredients? Um, And he emailed back a list to us and we just reached out to those fair trade cooperatives. Now, there are some barriers when you're working directly with cooperatives. Um, There might be language barriers, there might be technology barriers, but again, you don't have to do your own auditing, um, which makes the process a lot easier. How has your supply chain been impacted during COVID? Because I imagine you're working, you know, through co-ops directly with farmers and, um, you know, they may not have been set up to be able to manage the disruption that has happened um, during COVID. How have you been impacted as a business during this time? Yeah, we've got, um, we've had uh, products stuck at ports Mm. and... uh, (laughs) Our manufacturer was shut down for a number of weeks in Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, stores in the UK have been closed. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've been impacted mainly around stock moving around the mm. world. When companies during 
COVID have been talking about supply chain disruption. That's a really high-level way to say that farmers and workers who you partner with are not able to do the work that they need to do Mm. to have a living wage. So for us, um, there's been a lot of responsibility and a lot of discussion around how we can continue to support fair trade co-ops during a really uncertain time. So it's been a lot of work, um, Mm. a lot of late nights, but um, we are starting to see stock moving again, which is great. Um, And some of the manufacturers reopening in a way that's safe and within government regulations. So it's about being creative during, um, you know, a situation that no one could have predicted. So I want to talk about funding, um, if we may. So you, as you know, we've spoken about, you spent two years developing the process, which is, um, is you know, it's a, f- a fair while. We imagine that also with this innovative idea that there would, would have had to have been a significant investment made. Tell us about that. Tell us where, how much does it cost? Where did the money come from? One of the most exciting moments probably in this whole journey was when we received an email from um, our Invest Now investor um, who just sent an email and said, oh, I've got a great idea. Why don't we invest in your company? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, that's uh, <laughs> yes, never heard that before. <laughs> it's an unusual story, but again, you know, our whole company is based on connection and building strong relationships. And we had spent the last the previous two years working with this company to help make the product a reality. Mm. So they were right there with us on the journey and saw our launch and how excited we were and the impact that we were having and, yeah, wanted to be a part of it, Um, which was very unusual for a fundraising Mm. round. (laughs) Yeah. What a dream. Before you even sought investment, I think it was in 2018, how did you fund the R&D process? Was that out of your own pocket? Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, the first tea company um, that I started, that basically funded yep. the birth of elements and, and the R&D process. And then um, we oh, ran out of money and, <laughs> and we did a friends, families and fools round. Mm-hmm. Friends, families and fools. <laughs> I like, oh, this I like one, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, most entrepreneurs do yeah, at yeah. some stage. And uh, Julie's family were really excited about what we were doing um, and really thrilled that she'd gone into business. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, does she want to comment on that? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, my mother is now on our board of directors. Oh, so um, I certainly have some cautions when you're doing a friends and family. No, I'm kidding. It's fantastic. <laughs> there. Um, yeah, so we, we did a friends and family round and um, that meant that we brought some of our closest friends and family members into the journey with us, which has actually been really um, special to have them there as we've continued to grow and build the business. And then from Mm -hmm. there, um, when we found out we'd gotten the deal with Woolworths, uh, we had to do a a full investment round. So we went into a Series A round. Yep. I just have one question off the back of the friends and family round, which I'm just curious about. Did you... Did Was that structured in terms of loans to the business or were, did you give equity away to your friends and family? I mean, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but I'm just curious about how to approach those conversations because a lot of people have to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we approached it um, like they were arm's length. So we had, um, you know, we had shareholders agreement yep. and that. So it was an equity. Yep. Yeah, which both of our rounds have been. Yep. yep. So talk us through the Series A fundraising process. What was that like? We first realised we were going to need a Series A round when we brought the product to a trade show in the UK and we only had product samples at that point. In fact, we didn't really know if we could make the product at scale (laughs) when we presented at this trade show. But we got over 200 inquiries from distributors and stores across the entire globe. And we realized, oh, we might have something here. (laughs) Um, So we launched uh, the product in September. And by January of the following year, we had um, received word from Woolworths that they were going to stock us in 75% of their stores. And Nicole actually got that huge phone call on a Friday afternoon. And literally the buyer, Mark, told told Nicole that this was happening. And her response was, really? (laughs) (laughs) One of our most elegant moments. Yes, yeah. Um, It was was late on a Friday. Yeah. Like 6 p.m. or something. Wow. So um, launching in 75% of Woolworth stores means that you need to be able to purchase stock mm, for 75% of, of Woolworth stores, uh, which we couldn't do at the time. So we started having some conversations with brokers in Australia and quickly realized that we were going to struggle to find values aligned investors mm, quickly enough yeah, in yeah. Australia. And, you know, there are a lot of statistics around fundraising and gender. Yeah. Um, only 2% of venture capital goes to female founders globally, which is very low. And mm. it literally means that 98% of funding does not go to female founders. So mm. when we got the email from um, our partner saying, oh, I hear you guys might be fundraising. We'd love to invest. Um, it was a real savior for us because we couldn't have launched in Woolworths without that funding. Mm. And it was interesting in the meetings that we did have, because we did a few pitches, mm. um, how how misaligned mm. we were with with the people that we were meeting with. Um, it just it was just we used different language, even um, yeah, different values. So yeah, it was really. I mean, it just worked out perfectly. Mm. Yeah, the, and when we actually went and met with our current investors, Organic X Labs. Um, I'll never forget there was a moment where on our profit and loss statement projections, um, we've got a 1% contribution on top of the 2% of turnover that we give to fair trade already. Mm -hmm. And um, the investor pointed at that line and said, oh, can you explain this 1% to me? And Nicole and I immediately got defensive based on our previous meetings. And he stopped us and said, no, no, I really like this. I want to know more about how you're going to use this funding to have impact. And we just went, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) (sighs) And it's, look, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you're seeing dollar signs and you know you need the money and Mm. uh, you just have to say, no, I've got to find the right people. We have to find the people where our values align and that we walk away feeling really good about this. And that can be so hard. Mm. What were some of the other lessons that you learned from maybe some of the other conversations that didn't go as well or you just didn't align on values and missions? Well, I think we 
realized early on that if it didn't feel right, we weren't going to continue the negotiation. We always say one of the best things about running your own business is you get to choose who you work with. And if you don't enjoy working with someone, you don't have to work with them. You know, we're really Mm. in the driver's seat here. Mm. Um, And because our mission is to speed the transition to a fair wage for all workers, there was no way that we were going to bring someone on that journey who didn't believe in that mission. It's funny because we've spoken to so many women who have taken funding and the biggest piece of advice is um, you've got to find the right money. Mm -hmm. It's not just about finding the cash. You've got to find the right cash, whether that's, um, you know, investors that have expertise that you're looking for or for you, it's the values and the mission that align. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really important point to drive home. It can be done. And and as you said, the email landed and, you know, things like that, like, the universe will conspire to find the right people for you as well, which is really nice if you stay true to mm. to where you know where you need to go. Yeah. So after you got the money, how did you upscale your capability to manufacture, distribute? Like, how did you galvanize <laughs> to fulfill that Woolworth order? <laughs> I mean, the irony is we're still only a two full-time person company. That's crazy. How? How? <laughs> how do you do it all? You've Three. got like... Not full time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across, well, it's across multiple companies, though. You have to explain that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so we're still running, um, well, technically, we're running four companies currently. Technically. Please please explain. (laughs) Please explain. This is taking a different turn. (laughs) So we still have um, Nicole's original Fair Trade Tea Company, um, which is in Australia, the US, and New Zealand. And then we have elements and the way that we've structured elements is we have an Australian company and a UK company Mm. and a holding company. The reason we had to do that was essentially we knew that we wanted to be the go-to vitamin T, natural vitamin T brand. And so we had to have um, bases of operation in the UK and Europe, in Australian Pacific and eventually in the US. So we set up the business for the opportunity to grow. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to pick up a chain in the UK quite quickly. So we launched in Woolworths in May of last year. And um, by December of last year, we had another deal. No, it wasn't even December. It was October. November? November. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) Of last year, we had a deal with a chain in, in the UK. Um, so it, it all happened really rapidly and we wouldn't have been able to take advantage of those opportunities if we hadn't set up the company with, I guess, a bit of hubris that this thing would go well. Um, got to back yourself. You do. (laughs) You really do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and were those deals with the UK and the US, were they inbound opportunities as well? Or were you actively going out and seeking new, um, distributors? During the time that you were sort of onboarding with Woolworths, yeah, we did. Um, we did uh, the trade show that Julie mentioned. Yeah, um, so we did go out and pitch and pick up a lot of inquiries. Um, we also, to answer your question about scaling, though, we yeah. really scaled through our great partners, um, and one of those was um, a, a guy called Richard Bartlett, who's doing some sales for us in the UK, and mm-hmm. he um, followed that deal through and, and picked that up for us. Um, but it was incoming in the sense that um, 
yeah, they rang up and said, oh, yeah, you know that product you showed us? Yeah, we're, we'd like to take it on. Can you deliver it in three weeks or something? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I'm I mean, hideous the, like that. Yeah, the irony is we got into a supermarket chain without ever having met the buyer in <sighs> person in the UK. Oh, that was the UK. Wow. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. Like if you know FMCG sales, that's just, that doesn't happen. But, you know, again, we spent so long on an innovative product with a really different USP. And because yep. of that, it's opened a lot of doors for us. Oh my God. So far, your journey sounds like a dream. I, I know. Feel like we, if we air this, we're in trouble. <laughs> It's funny because you don't see the chaos behind yeah. the scenes and the late nights. And we work across pretty much every time zone. So mm. there's literally only a chunk of time on a Sunday afternoon where no one else is working. Wow. God, I love Sunday afternoon. I know. Is that it's your favorite time? Day. Oh, we get to sit down and actually enjoy a cup of our own tea. <laughs> so how are you doing this as a two-person mm. team? And why haven't you taken on... Um, employees, contractors to help with certain parts of the business? So we have a lot of contractors and we do outsource Mm. a lot. I think what we realized early on is we needed experts in their particular fields. And there was no way that as a small business, we were going to be able to hire those experts to come work internally for us. So instead, what we did was we built partnerships and built really deep relationships with people who we work with on the outside and that business model has worked really well for us because it means that we can grow quickly, we can scale, we can shift um, without having to have a huge amount of internal staff in a country where, you know, we're on the most inconvenient time zone mm-hmm. here in Melbourne. Um, but we, our lives are here. So this is where we were going to be. Yeah. Mm. So you spoke about manufacturing partnerships and also sales, um, I guess, guy in the US. Sales Sales agent, sorry, not sales guy. What (laughs) other key partnerships have been really important for you? And how do you find them? Yeah. Mm, Um, Quality assurance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, someone who helps us out with quality assurance. Um, Nutrition. We partner Mm. with an Australian nutritionist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, who gives us nutrition advice. Mm. And I think the partnerships with the fair trade co-ops are absolutely my favorite because we get to chat to people who are, you know, growing the ingredients that make up our product. And that's always so special. And we've got a fantastic new manufacturer in Sri Lanka. We always wanted to move the manufacturing back to Sri Lanka because essentially we didn't want to be an extractive company. Um, With a lot of tea and other products, you take raw materials out of a developing country and you value add in a developed country. But that's not how you break the system of poverty. Mm -hmm. So we always knew after we couldn't manufacture in Australia or Sri Lanka, and we had to go to the US and finally the UK, that eventually we wanted to land back in Sri Lanka. So we've got our first production run happening as we speak, hopefully, Ah. with a fair trade partner in Sri Lanka. So So the manufacturing process that you created with the UK manufacturer, that IP, that capability is now in the Sri Lankan factory? It's part of it. Part, part of it. Of it. Yeah. Part okay. of it. So we're doing a staged transition. Okay. Um, so part of it is there at the moment and we'll continue to move that over um, so that we can, yeah, not only source wow. raw materials at a minimum living wage, but we can also yeah. value add in country. 
Wow. What's that setup like having to yeah, set that up in a new country? Well, I'd never moved an international supply chain before. <laughs> uh, no. So that was an experience. <laughs> it's messy. It's messy. Um, but it's also fantastic because, again, we were doing it from a place of our values and understanding that we could have, um, we could really work on changing the system. So that made all of the messiness worth it. Mm. Um and you know, a lot of lot of personal and professional development in starting a company and learning all these new things. There's a lot of looks happening. A lot of yeah. white knuckling <laughs> going on. Yeah, um, certainly you get very comfortable with failure and looking like an idiot um, and not knowing what you're talking about. But um, you know, again, you come back to why you're doing it, and it makes it all okay. Yeah, I mean, we move on pretty quickly from the. Yeah, we've got a policy that if something goes terribly wrong, you've got 24 hours to cry it out and then you get back to work. Oh, this is good. That's we good. I like that. that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we like that. Although we're not moving supply chains. No. Uh, <laughs> just yet. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's a big job. So did you have people move over as well to help set that up or are you trying to upskill, you know, everyone on the ground in Sri Lanka? So it's upskilling people on the ground. Wow. It was wild. Yeah. <laughs> what was the messiest part about that process for you? Like, what was, the, what was the hardest part? Well, we were doing it right as COVID hit. Wow. Um, and actually, we've had so many moments where, like, external circumstances just really play havoc with our plans. Um, the Woolworths stock to get that pipeline order yeah. to launch in Woolworths was happening right at the peak of Brexit. And all of the disasters happening around Brexit. And of course, we were manufacturing in the UK and trying to get product to Australia. And normally when you're you're shipping product, you do sea freight. Yep. And, you know, there are lots of ships and, and lots of containers, and that's usually not a problem. But because of Brexit, everyone was trying to get things in and out of the country. And there was not a single container to be found in the whole country. And we had a booking on a ship. And it was they. It was a ship that only goes once a week to Australia, and we must have spent. I think it was thirty six hours where, like, I did not sleep trying to find a container in all of the UK. <laughs> and I called freight companies, I called warehouses, I called our different manufacturers, and finally, um, it was actually an Australian freight forwarder who called me at like the thirty sixth hour and said. I found a container. It's in the north of England, but I can freight it down to your factory. <laughs> and if they can pack it in 24 hours, then we can get it on the ship. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. And That's then I stressful. called in every favor I ever had with our factory. And, of course, they got it packed and we got it on the ship. And I slept for a while yeah. after that. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate to ask, but if you didn't find the container, what would have happened? What would have happened with that deal? I literally can't even think about this. Oh, <laughs> let's not go oh, there. Let's not go there. <laughs> Gosh. That is so stressful. Yeah. Mm. Oh, my Poor God. Julie. Poor Julie. They, if he cut, but, like, <laughs> all of these moments, like, there have been so many of those moments. I had a container of 2,000 kilos of Egyptian mint stuck at the Port of Alexandria for two weeks mm. at one point. And it was, you know, 
It was terrible in the moment, but they all become such funny stories afterwards. Mm. I like that you can look back. I know. (laughs) Julie, you've got good juju. I'm going to hang out with you a little bit more. I like how the universe conspires for you. That's nice. Actually, our first ever employee made the comment that um, we were very different from every other founder he'd ever worked with because there were so many fires and we were just sort of singing while we threw buckets of water on the fires. And I really liked that description. That is a great description. How do you maintain that positivity and optimism? The smile. The smile when (laughs) you're really just like... I don't know. The worse the disaster, the more we laugh, I think. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) We just find something terribly funny and things going wrong. It seems to be our, like, Uh. immediate reaction. (laughs) Is to just laugh it off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because what else are you going to do? It's true. You know. It's true. Yeah, uh, we have had some disasters. <laughs> but I guess that's what running a business is like, right? There are always going to be fires, fires. There are always going to be disasters where you lose a ton of money. Or, but it's I guess how you pick yourself back up and respond and push forward. Yeah, and yeah. it sounds like you both are very, very resilient. Yeah, we've had extortion, we've had fraud, we've had big, big companies threatening us, and you know it can be very unfun in the moment, but. Yeah. Really funny afterwards. <laughs> Has there ever been a moment where it's like, this is just over my head. Like, I I, I don't know what to do next. I need help. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah a few, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think that's where having a co-founder is really important because you're not in it alone. Mm. Um, and having a support network of friends and family mm. and mentors who you can call when things have gone terribly wrong, Yeah, makes it a lot less scary. How do you deal with the disagreements between the two of you? Champagne. <laughs> Good. I was going to say we've never, right really, <laughs> never really had one. Oh, what? I mean, we might disagree on things. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, we don't yell or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, not that kind of disagreement. Just, no, yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, as I said, we were friends for years before we started Mm. the company and we actually met at a creative writers group. Mm. So we spent five years critiquing each other's creativity, which Mm. just built an incredible level of trust Mm. and respect in the other person's opinion. So if you can can critique someone's creative writing, which is so personal, Mm. then it's much easier to have an open conversation when you disagree on a line of copy. Mm. What a great exercise mm. before you get into a relationship with a co-founder. You know, it's something like creative writing and having to correct each other, you know, um, mm. work through each other's work or, yeah, there could be some really mm. great exercise that we can we come can up do. with. Yeah, we well, I think it's um, an important sort of point. Mm. You need to sort of create a, a level of psychological safety and trust in mm-hmm. the relationship and Absolutely. and be able to receive feedback openly and kind of warmly um, in order to sort of be a successful partnership, I think mm. there's, you know, some really good lessons in there for people. Yeah. What yeah. do you consider as each other's strengths? What are you both good at? Um, I'd say Julie's strength is, strength is uh, jumping in and getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you're going to use the PC version of that line or not. <laughs> yeah. What's the non-PC yeah, version? Right. <laughs> uh, getting shit done. Getting yeah. shit done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nicole's yeah. strength is absolutely innovation. Yeah. Um, yeah, Nicole's definitely the visionary of the two of us. 
Good. So we have the visionary and we have someone on the ground getting shit done. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice balance. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And and we've split the company very um, evenly. So my responsibility is everything until the product is on shelf. Nicole's responsibility is getting the product on shelf and everything afterwards. So having those really clear delineations means that we understand our responsibility Mm. and we can always jump in and help the other person, but we know where we are and what we're doing. So do you work together each day? Yeah, well, we used to. Before COVID. <laughs> Before COVID, yeah. <laughs> yeah, working remotely has been very odd, but we've got a 5.30 catch-up call that we usually spend an hour to an hour and a half on, and about half mm. the time we have a glass of wine and the other half we have a cup of tea. Mm. So definitely stayed connected through the yeah. self-isolation. Yeah, it's definitely better working together, though. We, you know, that sort of... Just discussing things come up. It'd be a lot more spontaneous. Yeah. I mean, during 2018, during like the real launch phase of the business, there was only, I think we calculated, there was only a 24-hour period in pretty much the whole year where we didn't see each other. Wow. Sounds like us. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We live together, so. (laughs) (laughs) Always seeing her face. So I want to quickly talk about marketing. You know, the tea industry, it's pretty saturated. I mean, you know, it is, it is a, it's a strong habit. We all drink tea, but there is a lot out there. And I sometimes when we go to the supermarket, there's just so much going on. How do you plan on getting true cut through beyond what you already offer, which is, you know, obviously an ethical brand and an innovative um, solution, an innovative offer? How are you going to get cut through maybe from a marketing perspective? Yeah, look, it's interesting. Um, we launched um, Elements with a kind of a big launch and we did PR, et cetera, which was fantastic. Um, and like I've always done marketing in a very bootstrapping kind of way and it was yep. always about just uh, connecting with consumers uh, and our tea drink, you know, our tea drinkers. And um, so we did it a bit differently for Elements, but now we've actually reverted back to the way we've always marketed which is actually just to connect with people um, and to connect with people who actually drink the tea. Because um, one of the things that's always been our strong point is that you know, we get about 40% of people um, who buy the tea or hear about the tea through word of mouth. Mm. And everyone knows word of mouth is is the most strongest way to market, mm-hmm. you know. Of course, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we've really reverted back to what we do best, which is just really connecting with people. I think when we first launched, we tried to sort of play with the big boys. The tea category is almost solely dominated by large companies. Um, and so we thought, oh, well, we need to look schmick and glossy and professional. And we did a sampling um, opportunity when we first launched and sent out these really pretty glossy cards with the samples and got a terrible response <laughs> from them. No one interacted with us. No one posted reviews. And we thought, well, screw that. So we started printing off letters um, on our office printer and hand packing the samples ourselves and posting them to people who wanted to try the tea and just got such a better response from Mm. that. And we really realized that we don't want to play in the same playing field as the other companies. We're never going to win if we're competing head to head. But what we can do that they can't do is we can offer the opportunity for someone to talk directly with the person who blends the tea, with, um, you know, the people who are behind the brand and created the product. And I think that's really special. Like if you call our 1-300 number, literally 
it's going to be me or Nicole picking up. Great. <laughs> <laughs> if we have any follow-up questions, we'll just yeah, talk yeah, yeah. We, we know how to get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can literally talk to us and ask us questions yeah. about the product. And, you know, a big company can't do that. So yeah. we realized, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to play in their playing field. We're going to do what we're good at, which is talking to tea lovers about tea. Yeah. And we're actually creating the product and we're the actual people who do the market research. So over COVID, actually, I did a bunch of interviews with um, people in the UK and in Australia, just talking to them about, you know, what sort of tea they buy and why did they buy elements and what do they like or dislike about it and that sort of thing. Um, so the great thing is it's so direct. You know, large yeah. companies have a sort of marketing department and, mm. and one person's doing this and one person's doing that. But when it's just us kind of at the coalface making the tea and, and talking to the people who drink it, I mean, that's such an advantage when it comes to developing new products. So what have you used some of those customer survey insights for? Is it new flavours, new products? Yeah, so... Actually, we've got a launch coming up in Woolworths um, next week, which is really exciting. Um, So this is the blend that I am obsessed with. And it's a bit of a cult blend at the moment. So it's called Bourbon Vanilla. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bourbon Vanilla is actually a type of vanilla from Madagascar. Um, There's no alcohol in it. But, (laughs) (laughs) But it's just the creamiest vanilla that you've ever tasted. We blended it with Sri Lankan spices and um, a black tea base and, of course, our nine vitamins and minerals that are in all of our teas. Um, And that was the reason we put that into Woolworths was directly from feedback from customers. People tried this blend, which was, um, you know, really only a pet project that we did Mm. and just loved it. Mm. So we thought, oh, well, we better talk to Woolworths about this one. And uh, yeah, so that's launching in a week. Great. We'll be heading to the supermarket to get that Surely? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds delicious. It does sound good. <laughs> All right. Um, we have a couple of final questions that we would love to ask you before we wrap up. I mean, we could continue talking forever. I know we could. Getting eyes from Brooke outside. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get you back. Don't yeah. worry. Um, what's been your biggest challenge over the course of the last couple of years building this business? I think there have been a lot of small failures mm-hmm. and because we give ourselves the opportunity to fail in particular tasks when we're pushing boundaries or trying new things, it means that we haven't had any huge spectacular failures, which is a good thing. Um, mm. You know, that Egyptian mint container that I was talking about before was actually a case of fraud and wow. someone had gotten into an email chain with our fair trade co-op and ourselves and I literally tried to transfer these fraudsters' money seven times. (laughs) Seven times before we realized that actually this was fraud. Oh, my Um, God. And that was a learning. That was a real learning because our bank told me it was fraud and our Forex company told me it was fraud. And I was just like, no, no, it's it's just, you know, they're a small company. It's fine. Wow. (laughs) now I know. Thank God. Yeah. Wow. Too, too trusting. Yeah. Too trusting. Oh, oh my gosh. Mm. It's, um, it, it's interesting though. We don't tend to ever use that word, I guess, really, failure. Mm. It's just things we try and that didn't work or that didn't work or we just haven't found the right way to do it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't think you can really stop and dwell on. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep going. Yeah. Mm. And I think I'm just thinking of Brené Brown's FFT. Mm-hmm. Fucking first time. It's like <laughs> if you're pushing boundaries and you're trying to innovate, you will fail because yes. you're doing something for the first time. But that is the point. And that's mm-hmm. okay. And that's okay. Yeah. yeah. You just yeah. have to, to recognize that and keep going. Yeah. yeah. We're pretty dogged. Like I said yeah. before, we just, we stopped taking no for an answer and started asking, okay, well, if that doesn't work, what's our next step? Instead of saying that's not possible. I love that. Mm. Yeah. We move on very quickly. Yeah. It's great. You have to. Mm. So what's been your biggest lesson or your biggest success, greatest success? I think one of the great, well, there's a few making the product is obviously (laughs) successful. Um, I think our partnership is a great success. I think one of the the best memories is um, when we got the call from our now investors um, that they not only wanted to be the cornerstone investors for our Series A round, they wanted to actually fill the round for us. Wow. We were in London at the time, and um, I had made Nicole drag her suitcase from the train station to the hotel because we didn't want to pay for a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this, was this the time where we were staying in a hostel? Oh, oh my God, this is great. We, so glad. This is a work trip, staying in a hostel. Yeah, Fabulous. Absolutely. You couldn't actually open the door to the uh-huh. hotel room because it hit the bed. So we, we could <laughs> barely get our suitcases into the hotel room. And yeah, we got a call that... Um, you know, we just raised $1.2 million. Yeah, from a hostel to uh, <laughs> 1.2 mil. Like, oh, that's a bit of a jump. But you know what's funny yeah. is we still travel like that. Like Nicole on her last <laughs> London trip was talking to me beforehand and literally said, oh, I was thinking of staying at this house that I can stay at for free if I look after their diabetic cat. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Maybe four months ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> you guys are amazing. No frivolous Except, spending over uh, here. No. When Fiscally I responsible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When I read that I'd have to give it injections, I... <laughs> that was when you drew the line. Maybe not. Maybe not this no. time. Yeah. Politely decline. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> go back to that. the hostel. You'll be fine there. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, though. Oh, my oh, gosh. It's so funny. Great story. Great story. Yeah. And finally, we would love the both of you. We'd love to give you the opportunity um, to shout out to another woman that's helped you on your journey. Can't be each other. Although we know, I'm sure that you would shout out to each other. (laughs) I know. I was going to shout out to Nicole. (laughs) You can. Oh, look, you can if you want to. (laughs) Uh, Well, Nicole invited me on this journey. Um, Ironically, I actually said no at first. Yeah, and then, up. yeah. <laughs> and then three months later, I realized my terrible mistake and came back and said, "Actually, let's start a business together." <laughs> um, yeah, I I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I hadn't jumped on board. Wow, it's been such a fun journey. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. Of we had um, we have a couple of business mentors um, who are all men who have been wonderful and. Yep. Couldn't have done it without them. Um, Graham Robertson and Dale Sipson. And George Gackis. And George, yeah, and mm. George as well. Um, yeah, we haven't really worked with any other female. I haven't worked with any other female mentors, actually. 
God, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at our business, where where we spend most of our time is working in developing countries. So, um, you know, it's not unusual that when I go meet with our partners in Sri Lanka that I'm the only woman in a room sitting at a table mm-hmm. with 12 men. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's a huge space for women to come in um, especially to product businesses. Mm. Um, but at the moment, I mean, I think it's 40% of businesses are started by women, but only 4% will ever hit the million-dollar turnover mark, which is just that drop-off is insane. Um, so for us, it's really important to be visible because you you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it'd be yeah. great to connect with more women, women business owners and mm. women founders. Definitely, mm. yeah, it's interesting. It's a complex issue. I mean, for International Women's Day, we did a bit of a different podcast episode for us, which was all about the entrepreneurial gender gap and the fact that not only do fewer women start businesses, but fewer women um, carry those businesses through into sustainability. I guess, um, and gosh, it's complex. It's you know related to funding and and networks yeah. and confidence and all sorts of things. So, um, I hope and I feel like the tide is sort of slowly starting to change. And I guess that's sort of part of the reason that we do this is to give a platform to incredible women who are building amazing businesses that other people can take inspiration and learnings from. So. Thank you for being that. Thank you. Oh, Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I had an interesting chat with another female founder a few weeks ago and I asked her, you know, what's your, what's your goal for the business? And she said, well, my dream is this, but my goal is this. Mm. And I was so shocked by the gap between those two things um, when the, her dream was completely possible, mm. but to her it was out of the realm of possibility. And I just wonder how we shift that. Mm. This is a great thought starter. Yeah. And I don't think this is going to end around the table. We'll have to, um, we'll definitely have to keep talking about it. But mm. I agree. I think there is definitely a role um, for for us and, and you guys, you know, you are chasing that dream and chasing that vision. And I think, you know, there's such power in that story. And that's why, as Anna said, we share these stories. Um, but I think, yeah, as you said, let's connect with other women. If they want to come and talk to us and, you know, maybe we can help in some other way, um, definitely reach out to us. Hey, at ladybrains.com.au. We would love to hear from you. And um, and so would the Elements ladies. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, um, we're here. We're here. We're listening and um, we're, we're open and um, we would love to, you know, help you with your journey. Thank you to Julie and Nicole. There were so many takeouts for us. Firstly, they've shown that there is a new way of doing business. Where being ethical and having a positive impact does not have to mean a poor commercial trade-off. You can be impact-led and profitable. But in order to achieve this, it is important to embed these practices into your business model. That means creating a line item on your P&L for donations or contributions, or in Element's case, budgeting for more expensive raw materials from the get-go to ensure their suppliers were paid a fair wage. What decisions can you make in your business today that will have a positive impact on your employees, suppliers, or your community? Another thing that we loved about Julie and Nicole was their insatiable curiosity and desire to learn. 
When they started this business, they weren't experts, but despite this, they did something that no tea brand has been able to do before. And I think the lesson here is that you can be a first mover. You can create something totally new that this world has never seen before, even if you don't have the knowledge or expertise. That's a pretty powerful insight. What are some of the things that you've said that you can't do because you don't know enough about it? And lastly, supply chains are not sexy. They're not often spoken about, but they are such a critical part of every product-based business. Now is a really good time for all of us to review our supply chains and ask ourselves, how ethical are they? Consumer behaviour is changing. Are we prepared to be on the front foot? And also, what is the risk if we don't take action now? This was a really interesting chat and we'll be over in the Facebook group having a conversation about it. Please come and join us and add to the dialogue. We would love to see you. And lastly, we promise this is the last. Remember, lady dash brains. Lady brains. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.